Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six and a half years. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I will down Swanfield, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? Is there ever such a thing as a cerebral footballer being perhaps just a little too cerebral for his own good? Maybe using that noggin a little too much instead of running around and getting stuck in, getting his hands dirty. Mesodozel, Kevin Murph. Mm. I'm talking about Mesodozel. Hello mm. and welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. You may have seen this video going around today of Arsenal's playmaker steadfastly refusing to make any effort at all to close down Manchester City players yeah. around the halfway line. It's mm. weird because... I mean, you can look like you're trying without expending barely any energy. I mean, it's qu- it's quite simple, really. You know, just pick up your feet just a tiny, tiny bit. Like the way when you're, if you're um, being substituted and the yeah. way that you pretend to run off the field when yeah. you're actually not running. Yeah, completely, yeah. yeah. You could just do that. Or you could just press one player. I mean, as as it was, he was standing completely stationary in the middle of you know, a number of Manchester City players. If he could just run over to one of the Manchester and just stand there mm. beside the Manchester City player, he would effectively be taking that player out of the passing rotation and would be helping his team. But the fact that he, he wanted to basically stay in the protection of a circle of players, his teammates and also Manchester City players, yeah. meant that he was <laughs> contributing literally nothing. What, what, what I love about it is when Yaya Torre gets the ball, because... It was being passed sideways a little bit, slightly backwards. Then Yaya Torre gets it and obviously realises, I can just run forward here. This guy doesn't exist. I could actually mm. run directly through him if I wanted to. Yeah. So he advances on Ozil. And it's not even that Ozil, you know, it's not like he's not chasing down players. The implication there is that the ball's being fizzed around and you're having to go after it. The ball was coming towards him and he still remains virtually stationary. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to meet this thing at a halfway at all. Yeah. Oh, maybe, it's, maybe it's harsh, you know, to... Um to jump on poor old Mesut Ozil. It is very low-hanging fruit, though. I mean, it, it, it could have happened a different way. Gary Neville maybe could have been talking about something else. Mm. You know, he, he could have been asked about, is he looking forward to the Merseyside Derby at that exact moment? Mm. And that means he's talking about that for the 10 seconds that everyone's eyes are drawn immediately to Mesut Ozil, resolutely not trying. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's because... 
Like, say, for instance, someone like um, Nathaniel Klein, Liverpool right back. How, how often have you seen him criticised for not being able to put in a decent ball? You know, there's another rubbish cross from Nathaniel Klein. Almost never. Almost never, because he's a guy who, in every game, is there. You know, he, he's up and down the line. He's putting in the efforts. He's always there. You know, Klein, he's kind of a machine, you know. Um, Quality-wise, maybe not that much. But you can, you totally get forgiven for that. You can't fault the lad for effort. No, you can't. And and it's, it is, it's interesting the way in which a player like Ozil, who does produce moments of ridiculous quality, I mean, none more so than against Ludo Goretz. Uh, <laughs> I mean, his goal against Ludo Goretz is, is the goal of the year so far. Maybe. I mean, it could be a, a Puskas award winning goal. It's, it's that good. Um, you know, Nathaniel Klein, let's say, couldn't do it. But when you see a guy just stand there in a game, it's it's like unforgivable. I think it's because it's a thing that everybody could do. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Theoretically. Nathaniel Klein can't, you said can't do it. It's, it's because he's unable to do the things that we're talking about that uh, the t- most skillful players can do. It's not that he refuses to do it. Whereas Ozil, you would th- look at Kevin De Bruyne on the Man City team, mm. very gifted player. The guy, I'm not saying he's a, he's a demon for, for a tackle or anything. Well, but he, was, he was being called out for... For letting Arsenal score their goal. Well, yeah. You know, I, I could. Possibly I mean, not the best example given that, uh, <laughs> that he I mean, switched off yet. But he switched off, Ken. He did, that's, a, that's different from not trying. That's what yeah, he did He did actually try. He did try to, to run back, but he just let it go too long. He just was had a second of doziness, then realised, oh no, they're actually Bellerin is in now. He's in, even though he's still in his own half. He's hard. already in. Like, Yaya Toure is standing next to me. Oh, dear. There's not really a lot back there. And uh, and he did, you know, it wasn't as though he what, he was walking, you know, or, or just standing like Ozil. He did try to run, but it was too late. You can't... Uh, but, he, I mean, I, I appreciate with De, with De Bruyne, he, he puts in a lot more. He does seem he's to he's more be dynamic. a lot more active. He looks a lot yeah. more dynamic, probably. Yeah. And, he, and, in fact, he was a lot more dynamic. He completely dominated the game yesterday. He was by far the best player in the field. A poor result for Arsenal yesterday then, but I'm sure their fans took it in their stride, right? Spineless! <laughs> Spineless! Where were they in the second half? Spineless! No fucking character! No fucking leadership! Where does that boil down to? It boils down to the fucking manager! He's finished! He's finished! He was a great manager! He's gone! He's gone! He's gone! He has got no... The character in this you, you do have to. You do have to admit, um, Ty, that it's the same similar traits same coming back in a way that we saw last year. We've been playing well, but we the past couple well. games, we you've seen a similar well. traits. True. We are playing well. We have, no, 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 it's true, true. it's true. It's, it's very disappointing. There's no agenda. It's very disappointing, but it's still there a long way no to go. There is no agenda. There is no agenda. It's time to go. All right, there it's you go. It's time to go now. <laughs> we got to come on. No, that, that, that's, even that, Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's about as much as I can take. Arsenal Fan TV. Isn't it Arsenal Fan TV? Mm. Thanks to Gary Caffrey, Bernard Coyle, and others for tweeting us. I'm glad that we're... Like that. Uh, that, you know, we're, we immediately come into your mind when you hear that <laughs> rambling nonsense. Well, yeah. The guys will love that. And we do. We do love it. Uh, because, I mean, it's stupid. Who couldn't love that? Yeah. Um, I, I, I find it hard to... You know, I mean, there is... A, we, we've spoken before about how, you know, how it must feel for Arsene Wenger. Um, that sort of Claude from Arsenal Fan TV is, you know, the way that the world has changed over the last few years is he's now like a tribune of the people. Uh, he's an influential critic now. 
You know, I mean, lots and lots of Arsenal fans will have seen, are familiar with his work. And loads and loads of people are will watch that. Um, he would, he'd be one of the main voices, actually, the main analyzing Wenger's performance. I'm sure it's something Arsene Wenger doesn't like. I'm sure he'd be, blood. I'm sure he'd be much more comfortable just sitting there in that ivory tower with maybe uh, Gary Neville uh, dropping by at a, at a pre-appointed time. You know, maybe John Cross, sort of uh, the way that the the way that things used to be. But instead, there's this roiling mob outside screaming up, you know, time to go, time to go. It's always time to go. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe the, the one thing that you can't deny is that Claude at least has been watching Arsenal for many, many years. He's seen this over and over again, and it sounds like he's getting tired of it. We'll talk Arsenal and Ozil with Jonathan Wilson today, and Rory Smith is going to be on later to chat about uh, his interview in the New York Times with the 40-year-old Francesco Totti, who's still chipping away with Roma. Book news, Simon. The second Captain Sports Annual Volume 1 is sold out. Good night. Good luck. A, a very popular offer we ran there uh, over the last few days. And thank you very much for getting on top of that. So good luck, Volume 1. Volume it's been emotional. One. Volume 1, we hardly knew ye. <laughs> no, Volume 2s. Not many of them left either. If you are looking to get it before Christmas, you need to get that order in pretty quick, smart. Especially if you're in Great Britain, that has to be done by 2pm today. That's December the 19th. Monday, December the 19th. Northern Ireland, the cutoff, if you want us to get into you for Christmas, is 2pm on Wednesday, the 21st. And Republic of Ireland, Thursday, the 22nd, at 2 o'clock. A reminder, free posting packaging to all of those destinations. You can order now at Second Captain's Time. Uh, ask, ask me if I'm ready, Owen. Ask me if you're ready, ready to bubble wrap bubble books wrap. like I've never bubble wrapped before. Yes, I am, You are the chief bubble wrap artist, well. so... Yeah, the bubble bubble wrap wrangler is the correct <laughs> term, I believe. Report on sport, please, Ken. So, um, yeah, that the uh, Arsenal-Man City game, I guess, was a big game of the weekend, really. I mean, Chelsea obviously can't be stopped, have now got 11 wins in a row. When you win 11 games in a row, you usually win the league. There's only one exception to that, which was Liverpool in 2013-14, who were stopped in the end by Chelsea. Um but usually, I, I saw that table as well, and even the fact that it was between March, it was like February to the start of April or something. Liverpool's yeah, yeah. eleven match run, they still managed to not win that win the league in that year. Yeah, this is probably not the time to go back into that, but you know, Crystal Palace three all, all that. Well, it was down to Chelsea, really. Um, the Crystal Palace three all game didn't really matter. I mean, it it mattered in a technical sense, but not. Uh, even if they'd won that game, it wouldn't have made any difference. They, they needed to win the game about 10-0 for it to matter. Mm. Um, Chelsea were the ones that did the damage. So unless you uh, believe in sort of calm, karmic uh, retribution, Chelsea are, you know, before the halfway point of the season, already looking very much uh, like the likely champions. Um, another win kind of showcasing their versatility. Uh, this is a team that can boot the ball 40 yards and have their big centre forward headed in. That's also something they can do. They're an all-round kind of a team and uh, yeah, no one has figured no one has figured them out yet but um, two of the, I guess, challenging teams going head-to-head uh, at Manchester City in a way I almost enjoyed the build-up to this as, well, as much as the, the game itself. And There was a 20-minute interview between Thierry Henry and Pep Guardiola. Did you see any of it? I didn't. Uh, I saw 
Well, when I, when I turned it on, I, I was trying to think what it looked like without, say, with the volume turned down, just from a TV production values uh, style of things. And it seemed like the sort of chat show that, you know, Oliver Reed would have appeared on drunk in the <laughs> 1970s. That's just from the, the, the aesthetics of the thing, an entirely black background. Uh, Pep Guardiola, I mean, I, I did actually think that there was, there may have been an element of, I'm going to wear the most continental looking outfit I could, I possibly can to ensure that. It was a tan, sheer polo neck. It actually looked to be made out of similar material as, as sort of tights. It was yeah. like a top made out of tights with a, with a little roll neck. Um, uh, and Thierry Henry himself was also wearing tan, kind of a tan suede jacket. And everything else on screen was black, mm. just like the mastermind studio. Um, as they as they talk to each other, and Thierry Henry, as an interviewer, he has, in the way you say of some interviews, they have the gift for, for making the interview subjects just relax. Mm. Thierry Henry has the exact opposite of that gift. <laughs> he's got He's just got something that puts people... Slightly on edge, slightly on the defensive, before even a question's been asked. I'm looking at it on mute here, Ken, and Guardiola does look a little bit. He's got the arms folded. Yeah. He's not. He's kind of perched forward a little bit. His head is leaning back, as in, what are you about to ask me here? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't yeah. look completely relaxed. No, he's puffing his cheeks out now, Pep. I don't know what they're even talking about, but he doesn't look, <laughs> doesn't look relaxed. Well, you know, uh, what was interesting about it was the way in which Thierry Henry repeatedly sort of reframed or rephrased his own questions to make it really clear to Guardiola that he didn't mean to cause any offence. You know, that he was, I know why you do this, but sometimes you get criticised for doing this. So without, uh, obviously, oh, and Guardiola's like, oh, well, maybe you're right. Maybe you, maybe it is my mistake. And Henry's like, no, 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 no. I'm not saying it was your mistake. No, 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 no. I know, I, I know why we... I know why you did it, but people... Mister, you are still my mister. Some people say, you're still my mister. I'm not your mister. Uh, uh, but but this was... Um, it. He went to such lengths to to make Pep understand, no, I'm not I'm not criticising you, Pep, that he must... <laughs> he obviously knows Guardiola, has worked with him, uh, worked with him at Barcelona. Um, he obviously knows this is an easy guy to offend. You know, it's not difficult. You, you know, you say the wrong thing. It was interesting to hear Pep talk about this. Oh, of course, here it's, you know, it's, it's all about the second balls here. It's all about the second balls. So is it really that different from German football? Is it really? Maybe when Manchester City play, it is, because I suppose quite a few of the teams uh, in the league will play against City in a way that they won't necessarily play in every game. Mm. They'll think this is a team which is soft at the back, goalkeeper doesn't know how to use his hands, John Stones, you know, and and are pretty good in midfield. You know, let's not try and outpass them in midfield, but let's subject them to a bit of a an old school aerial, you know, bomber Harris uh, type of school of football. And uh, that's what that's I suppose in particular what Manchester City have to deal. With. I, I don't think that really describes what the league is like, but maybe it describes what their games are like. If ever there was a team as an opposing manager that you would look at and be tempted to get the ball into the position of maximum opportunity, whatever it was called. <laughs> that would probably be Man City. It doesn't have to be an accurate long ball. It's just as long as the ball is up there and they're trying to play it around from the back and you're maybe winning second balls. Knockdowns, as he used to be called, Ken. Yeah. Not flick-ons, knockdowns. It's all, it's all second balls now. Second balls. And Henri's like, oh, and third balls too. And Guardia's like, Whoa. yeah, third balls as well. Fourth you know? ball. Actually, no. Sorry. Just, you know, just <laughs> bouncing, bouncing around there. Yeah. But... Um, 
they won the match anyway. City won the match and they won it. I don't know if you could say thanks to Guardiola. Um, I don't think you would say that, actually. I mean, they conceded a terrible goal to begin with, <clears throat> where they're back four, a John Stones-less back four. Um, Guardiola said, I apologise to John. He doesn't deserve to be out. I love him a lot. He's a nice guy, and he is good. But just wanted to keep the same back four we had against Watford. It was the first time that they'd actually kept the same defence um, from one game to the next so far this season. Um but it went, it all went wrong in the first couple of minutes just when, you know, we mentioned De, De Bruyne getting caught uh, by Bellerin's run. And then it was like the entire defence was just um, set up almost diagonally. You know, you said the idea of a back four. I mean, why is it a back four? You know, a back four is like four defenders can cover the distance effectively. That's really why four is generally considered or widely considered to be the best number of defenders because you get a line of four defenders, you can shut the gaps. You know what you've got like uh, seven or eight meters between your your players. You know sometimes less if you want to squeeze the game, but usually if you've got four guys, that enables you to cover uh, a certain amount of the width of a football field, which prevents the ball from just going straight through. You know they can get to it if they see the ball being passed, they can get to that ball. You can form effectively a wall. Of, of your defenders but it doesn't work if the wall isn't straight <laughs> if the wall you know the back four has to be sort of parallel to the goal line if it's all diagonal if if one end of it is sort of point is, is much further advanced than the other end and everyone's sort of running and spinning around at the same time unsure of where everyone is it doesn't work at all so this is what you saw with the with the way Arsenal just sliced through that Manchester City defence, everybody, nobody really knew where they were supposed to be standing. Everyone was spinning around, and it was a complete disaster. Um, but they got back into it with a kind of a, a lucky enough equaliser just after the break. Maybe you have to say Guardiola. Uh, Guardiola decided to put Sané in the middle after the break, and he scored immediately playing in that uh, position. Um, but I actually think Ster- Sterling. I was I was looking at him. I was thinking, I can't believe Sterling is still on the field. What has he? He's done nothing here, and then he actually won them the game. Um, I almost thought with Sterling that he he was having such trouble linking up with anybody. He was kind of trying to play as a centre forward in the first half, and didn't really know what to do, where to run, how to give the team shape. You know, how to give the team any structure. Just wandering around ineffectually. I was kind of surprised he was still playing, uh, but in the second half we got the ball uh, in that position. Because there was no one around him, it just made up his mind. Okay, I'm just going to have, I'm just going to go for this. You know, I don't have to worry about who to combine with here. I'm just going to try and beat the defender and shoot and see how that goes. And yeah, it kind of, uh, it, it obviously worked out well. I see Wenger didn't exactly take the defeat too well. Well, he was just talking about, you know, he, he came out with a strange metaphor. He said, um, it, as is, as it is well known, the referees are protected very well, like the lions in the zoo. I don't know wh- where that comes from. Is he, is he... It's such a weird metaphor. The referees are like lions in the zoo. In what sense are they like lions in the zoo? Um, are they protected? Is this a Harambe thing that Wenger's going for? Um, is it a Daniel in the lion's den thing that came out garbled? I'm not sure. But one, way, one thing or the other... I mean, he said the two goals are offside, and I would actually say neither goal was offside. Sané was level... I mean, the rule is that you, you know the, the defender's foot can keep you level, and I think he was he was level. And then the second goal, um, David Silva is running into an offside position. He is offside when Sterling kicks the ball, but he's not 
in the way. So, sort of in the way, the goalkeeper. No, I don't think so. I mean, he's not enough in the way to actually. No, nah, fairness. I'm, I don't think so. I mean, that, you've seen how many of those types of goals. I mean, that goal definitely would have been 100% illegal before the changes in the offside rule. But now that the changes have been made, which have been the case for, what, 10 or 11 years, um, this is the kind of goal that you see all the time. I mean, occasionally a referee will say, oh, I think Silva was interfering. But it's reasonable, at least, to say that he wasn't. So uh, you can't really... Complain about that. Guardiola, um, his, we were saying that he, he was congratulating everybody recently. Congratulations, Leicester. Congratulations, Chelsea. This time it was the fans, the Manchester City fans, for staying till the end of the game. He didn't quite accompany this with sarcastic applause. But he did say, I'm really happy the fans stayed until the end. Normally in recent games, with 10 minutes left, they disappear. So that's Guardiola's approach to... Jurgen Klopp was doing the same thing with the Liverpool fans. What's going on here? But Jurgen Klopp does it by kind of walking up to the fans with an aggressive look in his face and his jaw clenched <laughs> and shouting at them and waving his arms and swearing at them so that they're shamed into supporting the team. He did He did mention it after one of the matches when they they left or there was people leaving early. He said in his press conference, why are people leaving early? We actually need people to, to stay here and support the team, particularly if we're not winning. Um... Guardiola's approach is a little bit more passive-aggressive. Uh, I'm really delighted people could stay this time because normally they don't. You um, might need to be a little careful, Pep. He's just uh, he's had a few pops at the crowd. Uh, I think yeah, I think he'll probably right yeah, get away with it. Danny but, Taylor's been writing about the moves to China. Well, yeah, he was writing about the Oscar uh, to China situation. It was quite a, you know, he kind of took a fairly poor, poor view of it, I'd say. Um... I'm not sure, really. I don't. Uh, I mean, it just seems to me these are professional footballers. They play for money, you know. Um, if you if you've got the opportunity to to do this, he he did have the information that Yaya Toure turned down move to China, which I'm sure that Manchester City would have loved for him to take. But Yaya Toure wasn't interested in you know three hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week, which I guess only a man who's been making nearly that much for you know the last seven years. Um, really would be in the sort of position to turn then that kind of money. Otherwise, it seems to me, you know, players are going to go where the money is. That's why so many of them are in England. You know, it's not, it's not because they like England. It's not because they, they think, wow, this is the home of football. It's because it's got the highest wages. You know, that's that's the only reason. So if the, if that changes, if it became the fact that in the Chinese league, you could get the, that's where the highest wages were, inevitably... That will be also become, you know, a huge concentration of, of talent. I mean, Oscar will just be one of the first to go there. I mean, the questions are whether, whether I mean, clearly the league would not be financially sustainable under its own steam, paying that kind of money to players. I mean, it can't really realistically be, although who knows, you know, with the sponsorship situation, how that actually works, uh, you know, in a market the size of China, you know, how much could sponsorship be worth? Um what the uh, backing is from sort of local companies and industrialists. I mean, that seems to be where the money comes from in the league. You know, wealthy individuals and wealthy corporations uh, who back the teams. How solid their commitment is, how long-lasting. Those are all things that nobody really knows. Um, but the idea of players actually going there, the ideas of playing players... You know, I, I find it very difficult to criticise these guys. It's they're, they're only doing what every foreign player in England is doing. It's probably more surprising in some ways, though, that Tory didn't go, given that he is at the end of his career. Oscar, the point has been made repeatedly, that he's giving up playing in one of the top leagues, mm. playing top-level football now for 
possibly the rest of his career, or at least a, a good chunk of his prime years. Well, yeah, it's all right. Is is rich enough that he can afford to look at other issues. The figures aren't as eye-watering when your eyes have already been watered over the last few years through your weekly bank statement. Yeah, maybe Toure evidently felt that he he had still had points to prove. I mean, he's always felt as though he didn't get enough credit for what he's done. He probably is right. You know, he's never been. I don't think Yaya Toure has ever been Player of the Year in in England, has he? No, I don't think so. No, um, but he has arguably been. One of, he's he's certainly been one of the best players in the Premier League over this long period of time, you know, with, with one of the biggest teams. And maybe he felt that this wasn't really the way to leave Manchester City, sort of discarded by Guardiola. I mean, the way that things have gone, he's kind of forced his way back into the team. He's now a kind of a key player for Manchester City again. Mm. Um, that obviously meant a lot to him uh, to be able to prove that. All right, that's it for Kennedy's report on sport. Whose phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. This is Lebanon. Why is Lebanon apparently voiced by Apple? I've been working hard day and night, and now things have changed. Um, yeah, I was invited to, to purchase some property in Portugal. Well, I didn't ring, I picked up the phone, it's right here. And I picked up the phone because it's right here. Jesus Christ. I want you to walk with me. I actually can't afford even anything that you're selling. I'm just not in the market. Home. Is waiting. Well, best to look with it. No, that's fine. Talk to me. All right, goodbye. Bye. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. Jonathan Wilson is ready to talk about Mesut Ozil and Arsenal. Jonathan, I'm wondering, first of all, do you share the view that seems to be going around today that Mesut Ozil is a lazy disgrace? Um, sort of. Uh... I mean, you know, they're two pretty uh, pejorative words for things that I think are probably true, which are that he, he's sort of a slightly old-fashioned type of player, that he, you know, he's not a sort of flaneur of a number 10 who just sort of wanders around, like, like an Argentinian enganche, you know, tackling, marking, that's not his game, and it, that's not really a surprise. I mean, yeah, you can criticise him for it, but I th- don't really think you can be surprised by it. Um, Doesn't he have to at least um, make it look as though he's trying to tackle? Make it, make, he doesn't have to. We're not expecting him to thunder into any sort of, you know, leg leg crunching tackles or anything like that. But maybe just even if he's wandering around aimlessly, just w- wander towards where the the players are coming out with the ball and, and make it look good for the fans. I mean, ideally, yeah, but he hasn't done that. You know, how old is he? What, twenty eight, twenty nine? And he's never done that in his career, so he's not going to start now. So I, I, mean, I think that's one of the reasons why. This Arsenal, good as they they were till yeah, sort of a, a week or two ago, um, you know that was one of the doubts about them. There's a slight self indulgence about the way they play, and Ozil's characteristic of that. So, I mean, uh, I, w- I was looking at his stats this morning, and, and I sort of got the impression watching the game that he'd gone missing. And actually, he he played more passes. Oh, yeah, so he had more touches than any other Arsenal player apart from Monreal. Um, and his pass completion rate was better than any other Arsenal starting player apart from Gabriel. So in terms of the things he does, i.e. pass the ball, yeah, it was it was a it was a reasonable game for him. But yeah, as, as you say, the problem is he just something in his body language as well. He just looks yeah. so uh, detached when the game is going against him. Um, but I mean, I think that was partly 
inherent in the way Arsenal played. That it was an attempt to to sit off to to catch City on the break the way they had done two years ago. And then the first half that that did work. And then when City came at them more in the second half, they they had no answer. And I think they they paid for for the lack of edge in the first half. They they probably should have been two or three up by half time, given how poor City were in the first half. Didn't didn't really have the urgency to to take advantage, and, and then uh, didn't have the wherewithal to you know, to stem the tide when when City came back at them. I wonder though, with with Ozil, um, whether he's actually good enough for a club of Arsenal's size. Because, you know, Arsene Wenger has been has been speaking uh, recently about how we, you know, we're we've kind of arrived now as in the very top uh, echelon of clubs around the world. That's what this stadium uh, has always been about. We now have the resources to attract and to keep any player, and yet also reminds me of this the sort of player that Arsenal used to have to sign when they. You know, when they when they were struggling financially, I mean, it was never really they never made much of it at the time. I mean, Wenger's policy was not really to talk much about it, but it does seem as though there were constraints there, which meant that whenever Arsenal signed a player, they were never really, you know, buying from the, you know, the, the very top group of players. There was always something missing from their player. Either the player was eighteen, or the player, you, you know, there was some there, there was some reason why the player wasn't being signed by Manchester United or Real Madrid or. The, the kind of clubs Arsenal now see themselves as competing for. Also, it seems like one of those players. Lovely player, beautiful vision, incredible technique, and goes missing in, in, in difficult games, reliably disappears in difficult games. It's not really good enough. Yeah, I think that's I think that's all fair. I mean, I'm not sure whether it's about not being good enough. It's just he's a type of player um, who whose style doesn't really exist at that very, very highest niche of the game. Um, I mean, I wonder, could he get away with it in another league? Maybe, but you still think he'd get found out in... I mean, you know, if you think of how Jose Mourinho used him when he was at Real Madrid, that every time he got to a big game, stick him out on the left. Like, don't make him do any defensive work in the middle. Uh, you know, don't rely on him to, to close down you know, Sergio Busquets or, or whoever. You know, he can probably sort of... By standing out in the wing, he can affect the fullback's thinking because the fullback doesn't want to have him behind him. Um, but you wouldn't trust him to, to to do the tracking job you need to do against a, a Busquets or whoever. Um, so I mean that that Wenger must have known that when he signed him. So um, yeah, that that's a choice he's made. That, that that's you know when I say he's he's a slightly self-indulgent player, it's, it's indulgent on on the part of the culture of Arsenal as well. Yeah, it is interesting you mentioned Mourinho, Jonathan, because he has. You know, weirdly, maybe always uh, spoken so highly of Ozil. I mean, I think he says he's the best number ten in the world, or he has said that, um, which is interesting considering that you'd think he would be the type of player that would annoy uh, Jose Mourinho. But uh, speaking of people being annoyed, we can see rage, uh, the rage virus once again sweeping across uh, North London uh, and anywhere where there are Arsenal fans, as they've now lost two matches, <laughs> and you know. Everyone seems to be quite happy with the way Arsenal were going for a while, and it's it's straight back to rage. You know, it doesn't really take much to send a lot of Arsenal fans um, over the edge uh, at this stage. I mean, do you think it's unreasonable? Do you think these people need to uh, take a bit of a chill pill and and look at the progress that has been made? Why do you think Arsenal fans get so angry after you know these setbacks? I mean, has progress really been made? I mean, you know, they're falling apart in December, not November. Yeah. Sati Casola got a season-ending injury on the 30th of November, not the 29th this year. I mean, it's the same pattern repeated. I mean, I've, I've seen various people 
um, well, one in particular, uh, on Twitter trying to say, you know, oh, it's all different this year. Uh, but this person in question is, I think he's 25, and um, it occurs to me that, you know, he's, he's an Arsenal fan. And he's sort of, um, his, his sort of, his lifetime of, of watching football and really sort of taking it seriously and trying to understand it is probably about a decade. And so all he's ever known is this Arsenal, the Arsenal who aren't quite tough enough, the Arsenal who aren't quite good enough. So, you know, he's, for all the vociferousness of his, of his argument and for all the subtleties and the nuances he's seeing, you know, he's like a man in a, in a, who's been locked in a concrete cell for, for a decade. And all everybody else sees is there's a man in a cell. But because he doesn't know anything else, he's sort of fascinated by the subtleties of, of how the, the mould on the walls are changing. But I, I mean, I think that's why the, the anger is so quick to resurface, because it's a pattern we've seen over and over again. Yes, if it was just this season, when we had that run of one defeat in 22 games, you know, but fair enough, you'd say, well, they have played well, two away games, two difficult away games they haven't won. But it's the fact it's that laxity, it's that softness that's cursed them for, for a decade. And I think that's why the frustration's there. And people probably fairly reasonably look to Arsene Wenger and, and say that's that's part of the culture he's instilled. Well, if we talk about these repeating uh, patterns, what do you make of the notion um, that I saw? I mean, there was some people were writing about it over the weekend and Wenger himself was alluding to it by saying, oh, you should see some of the newspapers from when I arrived. Uh, that Guardiola is facing some of the same types of challenges that he did when he arrived at Arsenal 20 years ago. Yeah, I think he is. I mean, it's it's a different league and, and it's a good league. And so, obviously, it's going to be difficult to adjust. I mean, I, I wonder whether this is, um, you know, when you're talking about Mourinho and, and Ursula, whether there's a link there that, that the way the way the Spanish league is, uh, if you're Real Madrid, you, you, know, you, you know that in, well, uh, I guess Barcelona and Atletico, the games would be different. But in the other 17 games, hang on, the other six, yeah, 17, the other 17 teams, will all sit deep against you and they're all going to um, let you have the ball. And maybe in that kind of circumstance, Ertzel is still valuable as somebody who can find space in a packed defence, who can unlock a defence. And the fact the other team's never coming at you, yeah, his lack of defensive work does, doesn't really matter. You get to the Premier League where there's maybe six or seven teams who, at the start of the season, you just said had a reasonable chance of winning the title. And that's not the case. There's, there's far fewer games of just attack against defence. So, I mean, the, the whole Guardiola thing, and uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it's been, um, yeah, there's a lot of meta-argument about this rather than just the argument. You, the, their performance against Leicester was an awful performance. Yeah, there's no way of, of defending it. Um, you know how Leicester play. Nobody's played against Leicester like that for a year. And... You, you open the door to, to, to Vardy to do that, and he, he, he does that. So Guardiola's got to be criticised for that. Now, whether that's... I can't believe he, he hadn't watched Leicester. I can't believe he hadn't seen that in Leicester. So whether it's an element of complacency, whether it's an element of, of arrogance, whether it's his uh, fundamentalism is, is, is so strong he's not prepared to, to adjust, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. But for him to be criticised for that game, I think it's entirely reasonable. And because he, he makes it so much about philosophy, then inevitably that, the philosophy then is questioned and people say, well, how adaptable is that? Is that going to work in English conditions? And then because he's actually quite a prickly character, he seems to have discerned uh, a, a, a sort of um, little Englander, anti-foreign sophisticate um, 
mentality in the press room. Which is which, which is which is, it is there though, isn't it? It is yeah, but how how many people really is it there among? Um I, I would say a pretty small percentage. Then there's another percentage who who see this as low hanging fruit. It's it's easy copy, it's good knockabout stuff. Oh, here's this genius, ha ha, he's not doing very well. You know, you don't, that's that's not necessarily xenophobic. It's just sort of the nature of of a journalistic game, for better or for worse, but it's just the way it is. And then I think there's quite a lot of people, I'd say the majority of people, who are quite excited to have um, this this great manager, a manager who's won six league titles in his seven seasons of management, a man who's redefining what the game is. And you know, they, they actually quite like slightly better answers to what's going on, both when things are going well and when, when they're not. But, um, you know, I think it's a problem you find with, with quite a few managers that there's a sort of, um, or you never ask me about tactics. And then you ask a question about tactics and you never get an answer. Mm-hmm. And, and the explanation seems to be, oh, well, you wouldn't understand. Well, you know, how is that gap ever going to be bridged if there isn't some uh, trickle down of information from, from the top? So I, I think there's been a bit of uh, unhelpfulness from both sides. And it, it, it I don't think it will, but there is a slight danger that it sort of spins out of control and um, Guardiola finds himself or believes himself to be utterly besieged. All right. Jonathan, brilliant stuff as always. Thanks, Emil. Cheers, thanks. He's just a crying big baby. But you cannot call a player a baby. Coach! 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 Is the game you wanted a victory, boy? It didn't happen. What happened? I want victory for every game. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? Coach! Is the game you wanted a victory, boy? It didn't happen. What happened? Well, it's just uh, the nervousness. You look frustrated on the Coach. pitch. Coach! Is the game you wanted a victory, boy? It didn't happen. What happened? You wanted victory. Well, I wanted victory. Coach! Coach. Is the game you wanted a victory, boy? It didn't happen. What happened? Where do you think you got it all wrong today? against them in the premiership and we never said they are baby. It's just a crying big baby and you cannot call a player a baby. What do you make of the Wenger Pep comparison? Are you convinced by it? I don't think there is really a comparison here because when the the big difference is that when Arsene Wenger arrived in nineteen ninety six he was virtually unknown in England. It was like had a weird name. What? Arsene Wenger what is this? You know, it's like it's like it's not. It doesn't immediately seem like a name. I mean, I'm 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 trying to. Collymore. Yeah, yeah. You've got to you've got to think in 1996 terms. You know, we're not talking. We're not we're not talking about the, today's football, today's culture. It was a much less interconnected mm-hmm. culture. Arsene Wenger was a famous coach in France. Uh, he had won titles. He had won cups. Um, but he was not known at all in English football. It was this? Who is this guy? You know, Arsene, Arsene who was literally the headline. That's completely different from Guardiola. Guardiola arrives as a world famous, like world renowned, probably regarded as the best coach in the world by, you know, I don't know if, if, if necessarily what, what people would say in England. Is he the best? Definitely one of the best, though. A huge reputation. His problem is actually having to live up to the reputation. Whereas Wenger's was, he had no reputation. Nobody, and he wore glasses, 
which at the time was considered really suspect. You know, it was it was not a it was just not a thing that football men did. And you know, there was there was various other issues, but uh, I just I, th- I see them as very different situations. I mean, they are both. They, Wenger was arriving to a league that was um, still very uh, very British. Uh, he was kind of the first to show another way. Guardiola is arriving to a completely different, much more internationalized, much more globalized league. Um, uh, again, he's he's kind of against the core ethos of English football. But what that is anymore, no one's even really sure. Do you guys remember when Steve Staunton knocked in a free kick direct, or corner kick, I should say, direct into the back of the Northern Irish net? I do. Lands End Road. That was no, 31st of March, 1993. Mm. Long time ago. Yeah. You would agree. Believe it or not, three days before that game, a teenager had begun his professional career, making his debut for Roma in a 2-0 win against Brescia. More than 23 years later, Francesco Totti is in his 40s. He was playing professional football before that that memory (laughs) from a dim and distant past. Still playing now for his boyhood club, and he's a subject of a really good piece in the New York Times by Rory Smith. Rory, good to chat to you on the show again. Always a pleasure. How did you find Francesco Totti? Did, did, Did you manage to unlock the secret to his eternal footballing youth? Uh, not really. No, I'm not a particularly good journalist. Um, he, uh, he, yeah, he was. He's got a reputation, Totti, for trying to be a bit dim, basically, in Italy. I, d- I didn't find that at all. I thought he was quite kind of pensive and willing to at least. He's, he clearly doesn't particularly enjoy the process of being interviewed in terrible Italian, but um, he seemed quite kind of engaged in the idea of kind of what. Yeah, the two things I wanted to talk to him about, I guess, were kind of what Rome means to him and, and kind of his his view on how football's changed, which was what I was really interested in, because I don't think there's anybody else in the world who'd have that, um, who'd have the perspective he has of having played for 24 years at the top level. And he, he, he's seen, he must have seen it change so much. And he was kind of willing to, to think about those, those questions that I guess might seem a bit esoteric to him. So no, I, I, I thought it was quite nice. I enjoyed it very much. I was a little bit, uh, well, I fangirled a little bit, basically, because it is Francesco Totti. <laughs> and after a while, you sort of think, Jesus Christ, that's Francesco Totti. <laughs> but um, no, I liked him. What What were his views? What, what was the, your key takeaway uh, with regards to the second question there, how football has changed since 1993 when he started playing? Well, basically, he said that it's, it's, now, it's now about running around and it didn't used to be. And I, I think that's quite, probably quite a curiously Italian way of looking at things because Serie A... Obviously, like he came into Serie A when it was the best in the world by a long, long way, and there was kind of no league that could, could compete with it. And it's now been overtaken by England and Germany, particularly. Obviously, Spain's more advanced than, than, than Italy in terms of the quality of its league. But I think he, he said that he enjoys Spanish football much more than he enjoys English or German football. And I think he feels it's sad that everything's kind of been... The, the technicians and the, I don't know, the, the players of imagination have all been kind of found out a little bit they've been sort of flat bulldozed bulldozed out of the way i guess by by athletes and by by muscle and by speed and i think he finds that quite sad and i think that's that's probably in what in one point in one part that's probably quite a selfish viewpoint because obviously he's he's a te- he's a technical player he's never been a, a sprinter but at the same time i think it's maybe something that would speak to quite a lot of us that, that there is a feeling when you watch football now that increasingly it is more about stamina and speed and energy than it is it's decided by those things as much as it's decided by ability to an extent i think and that's not necessarily how all of us enjoy seeing the game played so i mean i wonder if toddy was to come along today would he make anything like the same kind of impact or would he be regarded as 
you know, maybe in the in the way that Mesut Ozil is. Mesut Ozil is a player who has got great ability, um, but one of the sensations on the internet today is Mesut Ozil standing on the field watching Manchester City pass the ball around and not really doing anything, which is maybe a, a behaviour or on-field behaviour from him, which simply would not have been exposed 20 years ago. It just would have been normal. That's just what the creative player in the team does when the other team has the ball. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think that you have to... I was at, I was at City yesterday and you, you did think, well, Ozil is... He was a passenger and he, he, he was basically an, an observer to the game. And there was a point, I think, when um, when Oxley chamberlain came on, I was a bit surprised that Wenger didn't take Ozil off. It was obvious by that stage it wasn't, it wasn't a game for Ozil. And leaving him on... In those in those situations, I guess the logic is that you're leaving him on because he might produce an incredible pass, he might do something magical. But it was obvious, even from the stands, that he he wasn't going to do that because Arsenal didn't have the ball. And you know, he, he they were being passed around by City, and Özil is not a player to sort of do that shuttling between players as they pass it around you. I think that you can, with players like that particularly, they're always dependent on context, and we we think quite a lot about. The, where players are born in terms of whether they're indulged or whether they're encouraged. So could English football ever produce a player like Totti? Maybe not, because it would encourage him to be something else. Um, could German football, again, Ozil's not a bad parallel, but may, maybe not anymore because it is much more kind of intense. It's about running, it's about intensity, all that stuff. Um, Italy in the 90s were still producing players like that. Obviously, you still had Baggio going when Totti started. There was Del Piero. You know, the, the, those tre quartiste, the, the number 10s, were... We're still, we're still kind of fashionable. Would Italian football producer Totti now? I'm not certain. Uh, and also, it's it's in terms of era as well. So yeah, as you say, that's a really good question. Would could modern football produce a player like that? Not not as not as pure a number ten as Totti is. I think the number tens that we're getting now are a little bit more athletic, a little bit more able to be kind of corralled into a team, a little bit more willing to sacrifice themselves, their, their own kind of magic for a greater collective good and maybe the days of those pure number 10s are gone I mean Raquel May's the player that everyone always talks about as being kind of born out of his era but there's probably quite a lot of those who play in that position who modern football they don't really have a place in modern football I guess and that is quite sad A lot of Italians seem to agree with Toddy that football used to be better I mean he's not only well he's very old for a footballer but he's he's very um, very much bang in the middle for an Italian I think their median age is just a tiny little bit older than Francesco Totti. So he kind of speaks from the center of the uh, Italian population. Football used to be better. And they all seem to agree, judging by the attendances, which are, you know, have been kind of in a long-term decline. Uh, Rome obviously get bigger crowds than most of the clubs there. But, you know, when you, when you do see Serie on TV, you, it, it always seems to be taking place in a kind of empty or half-empty stadium it does create a sort of impression of decline was that the impression that you sort of got is this a preview of what awaits all of these uh you know full house leagues like the premier league and and germany when things just um go out of fashion i guess well i think the um yeah i agree with you about italy i think the the, the weirdest experience watching football on tv is is napoli so you watch an, an napoli game at home and because the lower tier is empty, just no one can sit there because the fans from the top tiers throw stuff at you, so no one no one sits in the in the lower tiers. The um, it looks like the San Paolo is completely empty, or the, you know there's a few people there or whatever. Now when Napoli score, you get this incredible sort of guttural roar, and you kind of think if you if you haven't been watching it or you haven't seen it recently, it always comes kind of comes out of context almost, and it's because there's sixty thousand people in the top tier, 
So it is, it's a huge attendance. It's just you can't see any of them. And I think the thing that Italian football, and to an extent Spanish football, has, has done or has not done that the Premier League and the Bundesliga do much better is make sure that fans are on camera. And I know that the Premier League have got certain, um, certain rules about selling tickets for non-camera areas before camera areas. So you, it's, the grounds have always got, got to look full. And certainly, like, City wasn't full yesterday against Arsenal, which is astonishing that, that a game of that magnitude wouldn't be a sellout. But there were, you know, probably a 1,000 empty seats, something like that, a couple of thousand, which isn't, you know, it's not bad. It's Christmas, you know, it, it's really expensive down to football matches. You should never judge people for not, for not buying tickets for football matches. But it's certainly not the case that the Premier League is always sold out. It just always looks sold out. And the mistake Italy's made is, is they've not said, well, actually, we've got to have fans on camera. We've got to have... Wenger talks about this all the time. You've got to have the microphones, the on-pitch microphones in certain places so that you pick up the crowd noise so it feels like an event. And that's the Premier League's great success, is packaging its product much better than anybody else. In Italy, yeah, I think that in part attendances have gone down because of fan violence. I think the product is probably overexposed on domestic TV. There's too, probably too much football on TV, which obviously, Ken, is a subject you have written about wonderfully before. Um, there's probably too much football on TV. In Italy, I think you can watch every game at home, which doesn't encourage you to go to the stadium. There's economic issues. There's the problem that, that there'll be a lot of fans who know that what they're watching in Serie A now is not as good as what they could watch 10 years ago. Juventus's dominance probably isn't healthy for other clubs. There's all these things that, that kind of go into attendances dropping off. But the main thing is that I think attendances aren't bad in Italy. It's just they look much worse than they are, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Just on the longevity that, he, that he's had, I mean, he's 40 years of age now, still going. This tends to be seen as a badge of honour. And sometimes when the, the people are comparing players, it's essentially trying to put the players in the pantheon of great footballers it'll be said well that he lasted a certain amount. Ryan Giggs is a, obviously the prime example, a guy who won the PFA Player of the Year Award in 2009, I think, when he was about 15 years past his best, uh, or at least 10, 10 years past his best to be a little less facetious about it. How, how much credit do you give Totti for remaining on? And is he still burnishing his legend? Or in the last few years, is there any thought that maybe he's going on a little, you don't necessarily need to play until you're 40-odd. You've kind of proven yourself by now, Francesco. So yeah, it's a, that's a really interesting subject. And funny enough, I had a had a couple of uh, uh, heartfelt messages from a Roma fan about how terrible I was as a journalist. That I'd, I'd not kind of got into the issue of whether um, whether he maybe should have retired and whether he's holding Roma back, which I think is a, is a genuine kind of complaint. I did. I, I spoke to quite a few fans in Roma in a couple of days there, and asked them that question because obviously the, the Gerard thing is the best parallel, I guess. Which yeah. is there was a point in maybe 2014, 2015 when you looked at Liverpool and thought. OK, do you know what? It's maybe better, as hard as it would be, it's maybe better for the club as a whole if Gerrard retires or leaves because they need to start building for a life without him. They can't turn to him anymore. He's no longer good enough to be the to deliver them when they need. And yet, that, as long as he's present, they will always look to him to deliver them. And I guess there's a similar thing with Totti. And I asked, I asked people that question, you know, do you feel as though maybe it's time for him to go now? And every single one of them said, nope, he can stay for as long as he likes. And I said to this uh, discontented Roma fan that, I, that I'd asked people, and I don't think she particularly accepted that as a line of argument, but never mind. Um, I think there is a problem when players hang around for too long. Totti, in the last year or so, has kind of seemingly started to accept that maybe he doesn't need to start games. He was kind of playing, playing for an hour 
and then coming off and now that switch that he he tends to come on for the last half hour um but you watch him play and he can still pick a pass he can still beat players he's he still got ideas he still he still contributes so i don't think he's he's not trundling around ruining his legacy mm. but there is there does there does come a point where having a player that big it's the yin and yang of football i guess that having a player that big becomes a problem for a team because when do you when you can't ask him to retire. Roma can't go to Totti and say, look, Francesco, thanks for these 24 years, but we're sick of you now, go away. But at the same time, the player isn't always the best judge of when he should call it a day. And I think that is a really difficult situation. And it's the payoff that you get. You, you, you benefit from these players for, for incredible amounts of time. And at some point, they become difficult. And that's kind of that's kind of the balance in life that you get, I guess, that, that there's the positives and then the, at the end there is a negative. But... Certainly, from the point of view of the fans, there doesn't seem to be, or none that I could detect, a groundswell of opinion that he should retire, that he is a problem. Uh, whether that maybe is, I don't know, whether that's heart rather than head talking, whether it's something you say to a journalist but don't necessarily feel inside, whether just as you know, Ken knows that you produce a notepad and people say what they think they ought to say rather than what they actually feel sometimes. But it is—it's an interesting issue, definitely. I. I guess there will be people at Roma who think maybe we need to confront this sooner rather than later because the longer it runs on, the harder it gets. Just the, the last thing, Rory, is when he, when he started out, I mean, if you look at the players who were born the same year, you're talking about guys like uh, Andrei Shevchenko, uh, <coughs> Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, Michael Balak, uh, Patrick Kluivert, Ruud van Nistelrooy, all of whom seem like you know names from the very distant past at this stage. These are his kind of contemporaries. Um, when he started out, I guess... People reckon the best age for a football player was twenty-eight to thirty years old. What is it now? That's a really good question. Yeah, it's um, it's probably different in Italy as well because they do they they don't trust kids in Italy. Like you've got, I mean, Domenico Berardi at Sassuolo, who I think is twenty-three or twenty-four, still counts as young. Whereas if you're twenty-three, twenty-four in England, we we think of you as being in your prime. Uh, it probably varies by position to an extent. Um, I think it's got younger. I think football now. 30 is old. 30 is, is, is old for a footballer, isn't it? Pretty much everywhere. I guess it would be 25, 26 is when we think of players being at their absolute peak. And by the time they're 28, 29, they're starting to wind down. And that that's testament to what he talked about, that it is now more about athleticism. It's more about your, your pace and your power rather than your ability, your experience, your decision-making, because it's become a more athletic pursuit. And and he's, he finds that sad, because he, as he said, that... Football's played with the brain; it's not played with the legs, and I think th- that's the sort of football I like to watch. I I go to a lot of Premier League games and see people running around a lot, and everyone getting very excited, and people say, "What a great game this is!" Was it Everton Arsenal? It was loads of people ran round at Everton Arsenal. They couldn't stop running round. But at some at some point, there's a part of me, and it's all to do with taste. You want someone to put their foot on the ball and say, "Right, I'm going to think about this for a bit now." But that's something that seems to be getting lost because there is this sense that you have to be chasing, you have to be hurrying, you have to press. And if you don't, then you're not having the kind of, I don't know, you're not being seen to make the effort that, that is associated with, with, with being with playing well, with being good, with all, with all that stuff. And I think that's probably changed when players are considered to be at their peak. And what used to be kind of the prime age for a footballer is now beyond the prime age and it's getting younger and younger, younger and younger and younger. And you wonder where that stops. Because is it the case that in 10 years' time, it's 23, 24, that's the, the peak years for a player rather than 25, 26? And 
I'm not sure that that is because that's that's when you're physically at your peak. But mentally, I suspect that comes later. And when you've seen seen more things, done more things and learned how to make better decisions. All right. Well, listen, we'll tweet a link to that piece, Rory. Great stuff. Thanks a million, Rory Smith. Not a bother at all. Rory opened that piece in the New York Times by describing the mural that was painted in, on a wall near uh, near enough to where he grew up, I think, where Francesco Totti grew up. And it's the centre of, you'll get Lazio supporters defa- defacing it and then you'll get Roma fans coming along and touching it up. But I had a look at the uh, mural, Murph. I don't know what you'd think. It's, it's, I mean, it's impressive, but I actually feel it looks like somebody else. Uh, see that? He looks, uh, his head looks a lot blockier than than it is, is does it? I think it looks a little bit like Michael Fassbender. Nah, it looks like, Bear, it looks like Bear Grylls. But I mean, it looks unbelievably like. But Bear the thing Grylls. is, Frances- amazingly Francesco Totti looks like Bear Grylls, so it's it makes sense that the the mural would look. Mm. I mean, they look really similar. They Bear look Grylls similar. And Francesco Totti. That, yeah, I I don't know why I think that the, that's not a very good likeness of Francesco Totti, but it is an amazing likeness of Bear Grylls. And yet, I can also agree with you that Bear Grylls and Francesco Totti look. Reasonably alike. I'm going for Fastbender. If you're looking for a last minute Christmas present, secondcaptains.com is where to go for details on how to get your copy of the Sports Annual Volume 2 on time. Volume 1 is now officially sold out. We've got another podcast today which will feature uh, an incredible last minute win for Connacht in the Champions Cup, amongst other topics of conversation. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, thanks, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.